0: You Mike's Michael? not here. not. Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> or the ADA. I used to have that job on my office. Everybody looks at you as the speaker. <laughs> yeah. Hello? Can you hear me now? No. 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 <laughs> well, we can. <laughs> see the sweat on This is the Hello? Oh, there you go. All right, you can hear me now, right? Woo! All right, since a bunch of new people walked in the room, let's try that again. If you are currently working on a mobile product, raise your hand. All right, and if you aren't working on a mobile product, but you're looking to launch one sometime in the near future, let let me know. Okay, so we have a good mix of pretty experienced um, people in mobile as well as people looking to launch in mobile. So, as pretty much all of you know, based on how crowded this room is, Mobile is really hot right now. So in the last four quarters, mobile startups have raised $3.2 billion. And no doubt some of this money is in some of your pockets right now. So even though mobile is hot, that doesn't always mean that profits are. So I wanna take a look at, at the typical developer's economics. So if you're looking to build an app like of medium complexity, it typically costs somewhere between 10K and 50K. It can easily cost a lot more than this, depending on where you source your talent and the details of your app. It doesn't typically cost much less than this though. Unfortunately, Forbes estimates that the typical revenue per app in the Apple App Store is only about $4,000 per app. So even though these are estimates and they're obviously outliers, clearly there are many multi-billion dollar mobile startups out there, your average mobile developer is probably not raking it in, especially on, on Apple. But if you look on Android, the picture's not that much prettier. Typically costs a little bit more to build an Android app. There's a lot of fragmentation, testing is very expensive. So you can expect that it will cost like 10 to 30% more to build an Android app. And the revenue picture looks worse. Like Forbes estimates that you know the average revenue per app in the Google Play Store is just a little bit over a yeah. thousand. So these numbers are one of the main motivations between my for my talk today, which is rapid iteration on mobile. Also known as how not to lose all of your seed money trying to get to an MVP. So for those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Maria Yao. I run a design studio called Xanadu. We specialize in mobile experiences. We've worked with tiny startups, as well as large corporations to craft delightful mobile experiences. And I've seen many excellent examples of lean and some terrible examples of iterating on mobile. So today I'm hoping to share them with you and hope that you can take some of these techniques and practices back to your own work. So for this talk today, I'm actually going to focus on fairly early prototyping. So like when you first come up with an idea and you want to validate whether there's any need or demand for that product, the reason I'm going to do that is a lot of times, depending on what you choose to prototype off the bat, sometimes you can build prototypes that give you false positives, and you end up iterating really quickly in a direction that ends up being wrong. So we're going to talk in detail about how to not do that. So mobile, mobile development is really annoying, especially compared to web. And one of the reasons that is that mobile is very fragmented. So if you're working on Apple and uh, in the App Store, maybe it's not as bad, but if you switch to Android, suddenly you're dealing with a ton of different kinds of hardware, different device resolutions, different browser functions and capabilities. And it can be a very arduous process developing a cohesive and well-designed experience for all mobile devices. So another issue with iterating on mobile is sometimes there's gated iteration. So if you're submitting an app to the app store, if you're lucky, maybe you'll wait five days and your app will be accepted. If you're unlucky, you could wait over a month. And it's not just when you first submit your app. It's every time you have a new update to your app, you could be waiting a week to two weeks for that update to go through. So it can be hard to push very rapidly iterations to your entire user base. Now, another issue with mobile, so anybody who runs a mobile company right now probably has experienced this, but there is a shortage of technical talent when it comes to trying to hire iOS developers and Android developers, because everybody and their grandmother has an idea for an app. And so if you are you know, a successful and talented product person in mobile, there's just really no shortage of opportunities for you. It can be hard when you're an entrepreneur to get attention for your startup or your product. So other than these issues impacting development cycle, mobile is also a very different design paradigm. So we've spent decades designing for these large, beautiful resolutions, these cinematic displays that sit on your desktop at home or at the office. But now we have to take all of that design knowledge and squeeze it into a tiny little mobile screen. And designing for mobile, given these real estate constraints, is very different than designing for desktop. And not only is the real estate not very forgiving in mobile, mobile users are also really, really distracted. So typically when you're using your mobile phone, you're out and about, you're at a party with friends, you're at a conference listening to a talk. So (laughs) oftentimes it doesn't get your full attention. And certainly I know that when I start tasks on mobile, oftentimes I get distracted, forget, and then never come back. (laughs) And also, you know, mobile phones can sometimes cause you to be so focused on the phone that you become unaware of your surroundings. One of my favorite facts about this is that when cell phones first got really popular in London, they had a huge rise in incidents of texting accidents because people would be texting and not watching where they're going and then run into things. And ultimately, the city decided to start padding telephone poles and lamp posts to try to minimize the the damage from these texting incidents. So mobile, mobile user input is kind of a pain in the ass I'm sure many of you have made worse than this in terms of autocorrect mistakes. This was actually fairly tame relative to the other autocorrect jokes that I found. Um, but the point is that mobile input's kind of a pain in the ass. And then there's the issue of distribution. So when you look at the App Store, and you look at Google Play, you're getting close to about a million apps each on those platforms. But your typical mobile user can only focus on about eight in a single day maybe 15, 20 different apps in a week. So you want your app to be successful, you're competing with millions of apps for very limited attention span, as opposed to if you look at how many websites somebody browses in a typical day, it could number in the hundreds. So retention is also challenging on mobile. So these are stats that come from Flurry and Localytics. They're some of the larger mobile analytics platforms. It looks like about a quarter of downloaded apps are open just one time. And keep in mind, this is after somebody has heard about your app, looked for it in the App Store, downloaded it, waited for it to install, remembered to go back to it, opened it, and then just left, despite all of that effort. And even if you make it past this first impression, 62% of an app's users are typically lost after one month. So if you're sitting here thinking, how am I going to be successful on mobile, probably kind of feels like you're navigating a maze. And the thing about a maze, I like this analogy a lot for trying to iterate on mobile and iterating in general. Because if you're navigating through a maze and you make a wrong turn early on, you could actually spend a long time iterating in the wrong direction, going in the wrong direction before you realize that you're in a dead end and you need to backtrack. And so this goes back to what I said before where sometimes when I see startups and other companies trying to be lean, they're actually moving quite quickly through the build, measure, learn loop. but you know, something's wrong with one of their assumptions or one of their early prototypes gave them a false positive and they end up going in the wrong direction. So, in my talk today I'm gonna focus on ways you can avoid doing that. I'm gonna break it down into three sections. The first is principles, which is understanding what what makes for good iteration, what makes for a good prototype. Second thing I'm gonna talk about is strategy. What do you, what should you focus on depending on, you know, your product type or your product category. And the last thing I'm gonna talk about is tactics. Which is more nitty gritty, like implementation ideas for how you might go about building your own prototypes. So, let's start with principles. I'm gonna ask what is a fairly simple question, which is what is a prototype? Does anybody wanna answer that? Have an idea? Brave souls? <laughs> all right. Something that sort of works to see whether or not it works at all. <laughs> Something that sort of works to see whether it works at all, it's pretty good. Somebody else have another idea about what a prototype should be? Something that can be tested. Something that can be tested. Good answer. So next question I have is what makes a prototype effective? How did you know if you built a good or a bad prototype? Anybody have any ideas? Yeah? Believable. Believable. It answers the question you have. It answers the question you have. So, in order to determine what a good prototype should be, I first want to review the build, measure, learn loop. Since you're at the Lean Startup Conference, you probably know this already, but it doesn't hurt to review. The whole Lean Startup methodology is where you come up with a hypothesis. You, you, you kind of rank the hypotheses you have about the risks of a market or a product. And then you build a prototype to test that hypothesis. You measure its performance. Then you learn from that, and you iterate on your beliefs. So if you're going to go back to this question, what is a prototype? Well, a prototype is a test that helps you answer a question. So you're right on. Um, but when you go to this question, which is what makes a prototype effective? Well, OK, it depends on what question you actually asked in the first place. So we want to discuss examples of good and bad questions, uh, because it, it can be difficult to make sure that you are asking the right question before you even start the prototyping process. So I want to discuss this terminology which is minimum viable product and it's become a very very popular term due to the startup like due to the popularity of lean startup philosophy so sometimes people like to debate this term they'll say well I don't really know what you mean by minimum and well how can I tell if something is viable it's very confusing I actually think that the biggest problem with this term is the third word which is product so when you tell somebody you should be building an MVP a minimum viable product A lot of times people jump to the conclusion that they actually should be building some kind of tangible software. Like, oh, I should be building an app or I should be building, you know, a website. Um, And the problem with that is oftentimes that devolves into this kind of thinking where instead of building a a viable product, you focus on making a minimum viable interface. (laughs) And this is not that useful. And let me kind of walk you through why. When somebody comes up with an app idea, typically the first thing they do is this, where, they start sketching out what the product should look like. like. Oh, what icon should go in the tab bar and you know what text should be in what row label. Sometimes they'll go and make paper prototypes, and show them to some people, get some feedback. It feels really lean because you know you're using pen and paper, kind of feels like you know, you're moving really fast. Um, Sometimes people even go and they go use balsamic or some kind of wireframing tool and they map out all these complicated user flows to show you how one screen goes to another. And this is all very important design work. It's absolutely critical in the mobile design process, but it doesn't always answer the most critical questions up front. So when you do wireframe prototyping or interface-focused prototyping, those wireframes are really good at answering certain questions, such as, Can people navigate through my interface? Mm -hmm. Do people understand what these buttons do? Can people perform basic tasks in this app? And these are very important, but only if you're building the right product. Wireframes early on typically don't help you answer, or they don't effectively help you answer important questions like, will people come use this app every day? Will they become passionate evangelists? Will they share my app with their friends and their colleagues? And will will they pay for my value proposition? So to avoid thinking in the sort of product interface angle before you build products, I encourage you to ask yourself the question, why are you building your product at all? Typically, the answer is usually you're trying to solve a discrete problem that's known, or you're just trying to deliver a new positive experience. So if that's the case, I would think not about building a minimum viable product when you go to iterate, I would think instead about building a minimum viable experience if you have a product that is you know, consumer-facing and kind of a vitamin pill, such as Instagram or Foursquare. It's not solving a discrete problem, but really delivering an in- interesting and unique experience. Or if you're building a utility app that solves a clear problem, I'd think about you know, what is your minimum viable value? And so when you're trying to figure out, okay, what is my minimum viable experience or what is my minimum viable value? it's really important to understand this concept, which is a core loop. A core loop is a design paradigm that comes from gaming. And it is this. Core loop is the main set of actions that your users have to take in order to make themselves and your business successful. So as a simple example, all of you probably know what Farmville is. Go through the loop of Farmville. You start Farmville with a small amount of money. You use it to buy seeds. You grow some crops. You sell the crops. And with your profits, you buy more seeds, you grow more crops, you sell the crops, you keep going through this loop. If you can get a user addicted to going through this loop, you can do all sorts of things with monetization and growth. So, because people are so interested in you know, buying seeds, growing crops, selling crops, and iterating through this engagement loop, Zynga is able to charge for virtual goods, uh, vir- virtual goods like Fast Grow, that help users get through this cycle faster. They're able to incentivize users to spam their friends because having neighbors on your farm helps you get through this cycle. So if you think this is a little bit of a simplistic example, it actually has a lot of parallels in consumer-facing mobile apps and consumer-facing technology in general. For example, let's look at the core loop for Dropbox. It's even simpler. With Dropbox, you buy space, you fill it, you run out of space, and you buy more space. So I personally have had to upgrade my Dropbox account more times than I care to admit, um, but it, ha- it happens fairly frequently. But if you want to, say, move through the loop faster or maybe skip a step, Dropbox also lets you do things like spam your friends. And what that does is because people are so engaged in this like, core loop of Dropbox, they're able to do things like get you to pay or get you to share Dropbox with your friends in exchange for some free space. So to go through one more example. Amazon. So when people think of Amazon, they usually think that Amazon is a successful e-commerce platform because the prices are very competitive. And this is definitely true. But early on in Amazon's career, or Amazon's life, they actually had a huge advantage over other e-commerce suppliers because they really focused on user-generated content, namely product reviews. Okay. So when people would look to buy a particular item, they would go to Amazon instead of Best Buy. Because if you're buying online site unseen, product reviews are one of the most important criteria that informs your purchasing decision. So with Amazon, the loop is you read a review, you buy a product, and you leave a review. Not everyone leaves a review, but the most engaged users on Amazon do. And their engagement drives the engagement of non-reviewers who depend on their, their reviews. So, Before you even start prototyping or figuring out what you're going to iterate on, this is a really important question to ask yourself, which is, what does a user need to do to make themselves and your business more successful? Now, if you already have an app, you can can apply the same thinking to a new product you're, or sorry, a new feature you're thinking of launching, or some extra service you want to add onto an existing product. But typically, if you are in consumer internet, your core loop is probably going to fall into one of these following categories, which is, You need users to return regularly. You need them to contribute content. You need them to invite friends. Or you need them to make repeat purchases. Almost all core loops in consumer apps fit into one of these four categories. So basically, when you think about your minimum viable experience and your minimum viable value, think through your core loop and why somebody would be able to repeatedly engage through that loop. The questions that you really need to answer are, well, are people willing to go through your core loop? And how often will they do it? Because that's going to drive the engagement and ultimately the success of your app. You do not want to spend a lot of time focusing on minimum viable interface. Like, oh, does this button look good in this corner? And you know, what, what order should these screens be in? Because that's important, but only after you've validated that people want to go through your core loop and that they will do it often. So to summarize the principles, one is that a prototype is no good if you don't ask the right question. Instead of focusing on product, you probably want to focus on value and experience, because they underlie your product, and they help you avoid thinking too much on the interface lines. And then finally, you need to make sure you really understand your core loop, and you would understand why and how much people are willing to go through it. So now that we've covered principles, we move on to the next stage, which is strategy. And with strategy, we're going to talk about what to focus on. So I'm going to talk about four different strategies. They, these are by no means a comprehensive list of strategies; just some of my favorite. So we're going to talk about how you prototype simplicity, emotion, engagement, and distribution using four different case studies. The first one is prototyping simplicity. And by prototyping simplicity, I do not mean making simple prototypes. What I mean is. How do you capture a complex experience on a mobile device in a simple way? Because on mobile, like we said, people are distracted. The screen is tiny. It, it's, it's harder to engage in an immersive way on a mobile device versus on desktop. So this is the first screen of a pretty successful app that's been downloaded millions of times. This is the, it was a one-screen prototype. I want you guys to guess what it does. Anybody want to venture some guesses? What do you think it does? Play music. Play music. Plays MUSIC. You guys are so sharp. I've had uh, somebody guess it was a financial app once, and then somebody else thought it was like a, a data analytics app. So you guys are really smart. So anyway, this is actually the very first screen of Smule's guitar app. And it was just one screen. That's it. And at the time, there were actually many other guitar apps in the market. And it looked a lot like this. So. If I showed you this screen, you would immediately know, like for sure, this not just plays music, but it is a guitar. And so you know that because it copies the interface of a guitar and it kind of squishes it onto the mobile screen. So it isn't necessarily a problem, but if you look at this app, it's going to be kind of hard for somebody who's not already an expert at the guitar to know what to do with it. You still have to know what combination of chords to play, you still kind of have to scrunch your fingers. In a certain way to get them all to play. It's even harder on the mobile device than it is on your actual guitar. So, same thing applies if you are trying to translate a piano experience to mobile. So, this is one piano app, and you can see that it's beautiful. It looks just like a piano. It's gorgeous. It's obvious what to do with it. But by taking the piano interface literally and putting it on mobile, you're basically leaving the user with one octave to work with. It is very, very hard to have a deep and interesting musical experience with one octave of piano keys. By contrast, this is Smule's Magic Piano app. If I didn't tell you, you might not realize what it does. But what they did was they completely abstracted all the keys and all the chords. That's a hard part of playing the piano. And they made it so that you could have the same sensation of tapping, but be able to basically play numerous chords at once without worrying about whether or not you're hitting the right keys. So I want to go back to the guitar example that we started with. So Nick, who was the designer and developer at Smule, who first started working on the guitar app, he really focused on one question when he started prototyping, which is, how can we we make you feel like a real guitarist? Notice that he did not ask, how can we take a guitar and put it into an app? Or how can we make an app that looks like a guitar? He asked, how can we make you feel like a real guitarist? So this one screen he worked on for just two weeks, and the only goal he had there was to abstract away the chords and basically make the strumming like operation feel just like a real guitar. So when you strum on this prototype, it the sound is very sensitive to your touch, and it simulates a guitar. So within two weeks, he was actually able to get this single-screen prototype to a point where it was indistinguishable from a real guitar when plugged into an amp. So he he basically, like one day at the office, plugged it into an amp, started playing it, and people thought he had a real guitar. But that's not that's not enough, right? Like just having a guitar app that sounds like a guitar doesn't necessarily make you feel like a guitarist. So when you think about the difference between, say, playing the piano versus playing the guitar, a lot of times when you play the piano, it's a solo, like a soloist performance. But when you play the guitar, a lot of it's a lot of it's like this, right, you're playing the guitar, you're sitting around the campfire with your friends, singing songs, or you're in a band and you're backing up a vocalist. So there's actually a very social aspect oftentimes with a guitarist's experience. And so for the next three weeks, Nick's next goal was basically to attach vocal tracks to the guitar strumming so that you would feel despite being you know, alone using this app, that you were somehow having like a, an accompaniment experience, like you were having a social experience with this app. And so this is what the app looks like today. When you first start a song, it pairs you with a singer who sings with you. And uh, the current interface, basically, you'll notice that it doesn't have any chords, notes, or things you want to coordinate. It focuses primarily on strumming, because the hard part about the guitar is the chords, but almost everybody can strum. So they focus on the strumming and it focuses on the pairing with the vocalist so obviously the final app took a lot of time to polish and make look nice but like the core experience really hasn't changed so within like a month and a half of prototyping and focusing on the right question it was really able to nail that core experience of playing the guitar on mobile so the guitar app launched. This past May, they've had 5 million downloads since their launch and an average of 4.5 star rating. So the lesson here is, if you're going to try to capture a complex experience and you want it to work well on mobile for a broad audience, you pretty much need to focus on one or two really key things, like does it strum like a guitar, and do you feel social when you play it? And anything that's really complex or difficult to do on mobile, like chords, probably want to find a way to abstract that away. So related to prototyping for simplicity is this next concept, which is prototyping for emotion. So most successful apps engender some kind of emotion in their users. If you have a delightful experience with an app, you're more likely to come back, you're more likely to share it with your friends, uh, and the business is more likely to be successful because of it. So in talking about this, I want to introduce a new case study about an app called Toontastic. Tastic is an iPad app and it enables children to animate characters and record stories. So the founders of Launchpad Toys, which is the company behind Tastic, they were inspired by how children play. So when you give kids toys, they invariably take these toys, kind of apply a personality and a character to them and then create stories. But in real life, you know, most of the time this is not captured. You know, kid tells a story, plays and it's kind of lost. And so they thought, wouldn't it be interesting if you could digitize this act of playing and this act of storytelling? And so when they first started, they tried paper prototyping. Because you know it, se- it seems to make sense, right? Like You can pretty easily draw a bunch of characters, show them to kids, have the kids play around with them, and learn from their interactions. So it turns out it actually didn't work very well for them. Because testing with paper prototypes is generally awkward. And even though they tested a bunch of very different kinds of prototypes, they were all almost equally awkward, and it was hard for them to actually highlight, oh, this is working well, this is not working well, you know, this is a point of friction, and this is not. So it ended up being a lot better for them to actually just build a really, really simple iOS app that ran on the iPad. So what they did was they built an interfaceless app, basically all it was was the stage, characters, and a record button. And they put it in front of children and had them test it. And then they did something very interesting. So after observing children playing with the app for a while, they saw that it took maybe about five minutes for a child to maybe complete a story arc or fin- finish you know, his recording. So what they started doing was they would take the iPad away three minutes before that five-minute mark because they figured, OK, well, if we take it away, let's see how the kid reacts. If he's indifferent, then clearly he you know, wasn't that engrossed in this creative process. But what ended up happening was kids would scream when they tried to take this app away. In fact, some people cried. Like some of the kids would cry if they tried to stop them because they were so engrossed in this creative self-expression that they didn't want to stop. And so the founders kind of jokingly called this the tear test. Um, And when when they had that emotional reaction to their app, they knew that they had something to work with, like something that could, could eventually lead to a highly engaging product. And since the product's launch, there have been eight million stories recorded, and the app has made the App Store Hall of Fame. So the lesson here is I'm not telling you to go and make prototypes that make children cry, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to point out that the, the tier test is really exactly the same as this question, which is, how would you feel if you couldn't use our product? Some of you might be familiar with this. This question was pioneered by Sean, Sean Ellis, who is a really well-known startup marketer and speaks at the Lean Startup Conference as well. This is a really good question to ask your users if you want to to gauge how well you have product market fit, like whether you've achieved product market fit. If you're not familiar with it, this is how it works. You ask your users, how would you feel if you couldn't use your product? Would you be very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed, or completely apathetic because I stopped using it a long time ago? So Sean is a startup mentor, works with tons of startups, he did a study across a couple hundred startups who implemented this question and he found that you really need to have about 40% of your users say that they would be very disappointed to lose your product. He saw that companies that exceeded this threshold were able, most of the time, to to, to create sustainable and maybe even scalable business models, but the companies that were underneath the, this threshold tended to struggle. So. I would encourage you that you don't have to have a fully fleshed out product to start to gauge emotional reactions. I would apply the tear test as often as you can and as early as you can. Third thing I want to talk about is engagement. A lot of times people don't worry about engagement until they have a full product and it's launched and they have a couple thousand users. It's actually completely possible to start testing for retention and engagement early on in your prototyping career. So as a case study, I want to talk about the early days of game salad. If you haven't heard of Game Salad, it is a platform that lets you build 2D mobile games without writing any code. So you could, for example, just drag and drop a bunch of assets, set some behavior, and create a game like this, right? Where it's like a classic space shoot-em-up. You can also create pretty much any kind of platformer. And I think somebody even recreated Legend of Zelda with the Game Salad platform. But creating the game is already complicated. It's even more complicated when you're trying to create the platform that enables people to create the game. So here are some examples of what the, the app looks like. It's a pretty rich interface, pretty complicated. Makes sense because you're providing users with a lot of complex functionality. So if you're going to build an, a you know, platform or a piece of software that's this complicated, where do you start? So Michael, Augustin and the GameSolid the game team, they started with a pretty straightforward question. How badly do people want to tinker? This is really what they wanted to be able to answer. And they did this by building an extremely minimal prototype. Basically, it involved one character. You could set a number, which would represent the character's position. And then there was one button, run game. And that was all you could do with this prototype. You could set the position, run the game, and the character would move to that new position. So what they wanted to know was, how many times will people push the run game button? And it sounds, it sounds like it's a really boring app, like you would get bored of this prototype pretty quickly, but it turns out that their audience loved it. Like There were people who would neurotically push this button every couple seconds, getting their character to like dance around the screen. And so this is very promising, because even though it's really, really basic, there's a certain class of individual who's going to be really into like this kind of tinkering. And so after continuing to iterate on this basic prototype, they eventually ended up getting rid of the run game button and just having the the platform run automatically. So since launch, there have been over 200,000 games made on the game seller platform, and 70 of these games have been in the top 100 in the US app store. So last thing I want to talk about is prototyping distribution. There's going to be a certain class of apps where distribution is more important than product. This includes things like social networks or apps with heavy user-generated content where network effect really matters. So I'm going to briefly talk about the early days of LinkedIn. So Konstantin Gurek, who is one of the co-founders of LinkedIn and their VP of Marketing, loves to say distribution is more important than product. And for LinkedIn, it's certainly true. When LinkedIn launched, you probably don't remember, but it was actually considered to be launching in a crowded space. There were many other competitors. And so the LinkedIn product early on was actually fairly stripped down. It was mostly like a, pro- a profile page with some connections. And the founder started with a really simple question. Just do my own contacts want to connect with me on a professional networking site? So they sent the very first version of LinkedIn out to about 300 of their close friends. And every person who did not accept the invite, they would like, constantly would call them personally and say, why did you not accept my invite? And he found out that it was for two main reasons. One is people forgot. They were like, oh, I saw it. I meant to do it. I forgot. I'll do it now. And so based on that, they started implementing a reminder system. And then the second, second issue people would raise is, you know, you look a lot like Plaxo. And Plaxo is extremely spammy. And I don't get any value out of it. So I'm not going to sign up. And so it was very clear to them that, in their invite, they were not being specific enough about the value proposition of LinkedIn. Plexa is about you know, spamming your contacts so that they, you can get updated contact information. You'll have an updated address book. LinkedIn is about getting you curated access to second degree connections. So the next thing they tried to do was implement a um, address book import uh, function. And so they wanted to see, well, are people willing to upload their Rolodexes in order to access second degree? degree connections. So what they discovered is that, yes, people are willing to upload Rolodexes, but they're actually not interested in inviting new people to LinkedIn. They were more interested in using their Rolodex to figure out who was already on LinkedIn and just connecting with them. And so if they had tried to, say, spam their address book or get them or heavily encourage them to invite people, that would have really turned off a lot of people. Even though it may have been good for early growth, it probably wouldn't have been very good for professional credibility. So instead, what they decided to do was focus on getting people what they wanted, which is connecting with people they already know, and then gently suggest people that they should eventually invite, instead of you know, sort of ramming the invite invite friends uh, request you know, in their faces right away. So with LinkedIn, a lot of the iteration and the tuning was about how to get the right level of virality. Like You can't quite spam everyone. It's been shown that it hasn't worked for competitors. Um, But you can't not spam people because then you're not going to grow consistently. So by kind of tuning this early virality, LinkedIn has been able to achieve pretty consistent growth for a social network. Like typically a social network either fails immediately because nobody joins it or like just grows slowly and then skyrockets. But LinkedIn has been relatively even. So to summarize strategies, prototyping simplicity, emotion, engagement, distribution, which one you want to focus on really depends on your company, your app, and what your business goals are. So now that we've covered principles and strategy, I want to cover the last bucket, which is tactics. I want to point out before I cover tactics that while it's important to implement prototypes well, if you have the wrong principle or the wrong strategy, you can easily be iterating the wrong direction. So make sure you have the fundamentals of getting the right principles and the right strategy before you move to tactics. So within tactics, I'm going to classify them into two groups, which is hustler versus hacker. I'm not going to talk about Hacker today because that's prototypes that require technical skill. I'm going to focus on Hustler prototypes because I think they're more creative and maybe some of them will find, some of you will find them very useful in your own work. So with Hustler prototypes, I'm going to talk about four kinds, starting with the first one which is concierge prototypes. So if you haven't heard of a concierge prototype, basically it's where you manually simulate the value that a product or service would have. As an example, how would you manually simulate the value of Instagram? So before you could answer that question, you need to understand Instagram's core loop, right? With Instagram, you see something you want to take a photo of, you take a photo, you add a filter, and then you share it socially. And this last step, sharing it socially, is actually very important, because by having a lot of likes and comments and social validation for a photo you take, it encourages you to take even more (laughs) photos. So when Instagram first came out, I remember that people started to take photos of all kinds of crap that they never would have taken of like, otherwise. And I would see all these photos in my feed of like artistic lampposts and empty coffee cups. And it was because all your photos were so much cooler, and you got so many more likes and comments, and so you were just incentivized to keep taking more photos of Instagram. So if you're gonna try to simulate the value of Instagram with no code, you could do something like this. You could have your small batch of testers email you photos that they want filtered when they take the photo. You could hire a professional editor that edits those photos on demand. You could upload the edited photos on the tester's behalf and then measure the change in key metrics. So this is nowhere near as smooth as the actual Instagram app would be, but it simulates all of the pieces of that core loop so that if you have, say, this concierge prototype running for, say, a month, you would be able to, at the end of the month, answer questions like, well. Does my service actually encourage users to take and share more photos? Like, have I materially moved the numbers? And do their photos get more likes and comments? Does my service help people's photos become more viral? You can actually answer those kinds of questions with that concierge model. Similarly, there's actually a lot of functionality you can simulate just by using SMS or email. So how would you prototype Foursquare with just a texting interface? Again, you want to understand Foursquare's core loop. You go to a venue, you check in, and by checking in, you get a reward. You either get a, a monetary reward, like a deal or a discount, or you get a social reward where you can take the mayorship from your friends and brag about it. So how would you maybe simulate this? You could buy gift cards at popular venues, like Starbucks or Pinkberry. You can have your testers text you when they visit the venues. If you think they're not trustworthy, they're going to lie, you can have them email you a photo of them at the venue. You can add a dollar to their gift card for that venue after each visit. And then you can add like bonus money to each card for the most active person over a month or a week to simulate the mayorship feature. So you're basically able to simulate a lot of the value in the core loop of Foursquare with just SMS and email. And you're able to answer questions if you run this for a couple weeks to see, you know, do people actually visit venues more often? By using this, you know, prototype, are you actually changing behavior? And then also, you know, over time, do they keep up the engagement? Maybe they were really excited about it the first week, but over the fourth week, they really churned out. They're bored of it. That's stuff that you can actually answer despite having a concierge prototype that doesn't have any code. Second thing I'm going to talk about is prototyping on platforms. When I say prototyping on platforms, on one hand I'm also talking about, you know, all the software out there that enables easy mobile app creation without any tech skills. So we talked earlier about Game Salad. Game Salad is great if you want to prototype a 2D game. Um, There are a lot of other ones. I'm not going to spend too much time on them because they're pretty straightforward. You can go and research them on your own, and they tend to be very niche. I actually want to talk about a different service called If This Then That. If you have not heard of if this then that it's basically a service that allows you to string together different products and services to achieve certain functionality so for example if there's a new photo in your instagram account then you can up upload it to a string or like if there's a new article that's coming out you can save it to read later in pocket so then how would you for example prototype instagram with if this then that you could set it so that if there's a new photo in your ios photos you can upload it to a Dropbox folder called to be edited. The middle step will have to be manual. You'll have your photo editor you know, mo- edit the photo and then move it from one folder, which is to be edited, to a new folder, which is finished. And then you can have it set to be if, you know, if there is a new addition to this Dropbox folder, then upload to Facebook. So again, it's very similar to a concierge model, but you're really leveraging existing functionality in other products and stringing them together. So very similar to prototyping with platforms is that a lot of times we like to diss our competitors. But there's no reason why you should let their good work go to waste. Because a lot of times when you look at competitors in your space, they have a a similar overlap of functionality, but missing some key feature you think is going to really matter. And so for example, before Instagram came out, there was Hipstamatic. And Hipstamatic basically did everything that Instagram did except for making social sharing streamlined. You could take photos. You could add beautiful filters but it was like not as easy and not as quick to upload to Facebook. So if you're gonna prototype Instagram with a competitor, it's pretty straightforward. Like You would just figure out, okay, how would I hack on this extra functionality? And then figure out, does this extra functionality actually make a difference? Is it worth building this new product at all? So if you are coming up with a new idea, I really encourage you to look at GitHub or App Annie for competitors in your space. Chances are there's somebody who's built something similar and you might be able to run a lot of tests using what they've already built. So the last, last area I want to cover is creative prototypes. I'm going to do this pretty quickly because I'm out of time. <laughs> but here, I'll do the second one. Uh, actually, I'll do the first one. So one of my friends, Dustin Klingman, who's the founder of Together Games, he wanted to prototype a game where uh, a character goes through a really rich world map and basically searches tombs for treasure and tries to avoid booby. Move traps and so instead of say putting a lot of engineering effort into making this a mobile game which could have been expensive he actually hacked excel so he figured well okay excel's a grid and maps look like grids so why don't i just make an excel spreadsheet that looks like it's you know a connecting set of tombs and then manually update people as they move through it and with this really simple prototype he was actually able to figure out within one week that the game mechanic wasn't strong enough to get people to repeat this experience. They thought it was fun when they first played it, but really didn't have any incentive to come back. So he was able to shelve this idea without incurring any engineering resources. So last thing I'm going to talk about with the tactics is how would you prototype a mobile app that features a highly interactive animated character? So for example, this is the Elmo Monster Maker app. It's one of those apps where you have this little dancing character. You kind of poke it and swipe it, and it interacts with you. This can be really expensive to prototype because animations are expensive. So what the team did was they cut out a giant foam board of an iPhone, and they cut out the middle, and they had one of their product people dancing, like, basically behind the foam board, and then their testers would just kind of interact with that giant phone as if it were a real one. So it's one of my favorite examples of really creative prototyping where you can actually get really deep feedback on interactions without writing any code. So we've talked about Concierge. MVPs, prototyping on other people's platforms, including your competitors, as well as pretty creative prototypes. So I know this was a really long talk, and I talk really fast, so just wanted to summarize some of the key takeaways. You wanna make sure you have the principles, strategies, and tactics lined up, because if you just have tactics, you can easily iterate in the wrong direction, even if you do it very quickly. The principles we discussed were one, prototype is only as good as the question that it was designed to answer, When you think about your minimum viable product, think about your minimum viable experience and your minimum viable value, rather than focusing on product and interface. And finally, make sure you test your core loop. It's really, really important that you understand what's getting people to repeatedly come back and go through those key sets of actions. Summary of strategies. Keep it simple. Don't try to put complex experiences on mobile. Apply the tier test whenever you can. Try to gauge for emotion as early as possible. Measure engagement early, because a lot of times it's tempting to wait until you have a fully fledged product and several thousand users. But you can actually test engagement very early, like we saw with the game selling example. And finally, if you're in a space where network effects really matter, you should be focused on prototyping distribution, not not focused on prototyping your product. So tactics, strategy, principles. If you get all of these lined up, it makes it much easier to launch successfully. So thank you for listening to my talk. If you would like to continue this conversation, you can reach me on Twitter at ThinkMaria and by email at Maria at XanaduMobile.com.